Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, Florida lawmakers move forward with a plan to expand health coverage in the state, but still reject millions in federal Medicaid dollars. We're talking to three local experts about what that means for you. Later in the program, a student researcher at UNF explains the importance of hands-on learning. But first, a package of bills moving through the legislature promises to expand access to and coverage of health care in the state. The so-called Live Healthy Initiative calls for $800 million in new health care investments. But it comes as lawmakers double down on their refusal to accept millions each year in federal relief. I'm joined now by Dr. Dr. Nancy Statz, board-certified anesthesiologist and founding member of Floor Fortis Health, a coalition advocating for affordable health insurance. Welcome, Dr. Nancy Stotts. Thank you. Dr. Christina Caulfield, Chief Executive Officer of Lutheran Social Services. Good morning. Good morning. And Scott Darius, Executive Director of Florida Voices for Health, which supports Medicaid expansion. Good morning. Morning. And we want to hear from you as well. Do you think the state should accept federal money to expand Medicaid? Join the conversation. Give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. And you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, or tag us on X at FCC on Air. Dr. Nancy Stotts, Florida is one of just 10 states that continues to reject federal funding to expand Medicaid coverage for the poor. Remind us of where this started. So the brief timeline is back in 2010, the Affordable Care Act was voted on and and passed. And then in 2014 was implemented. By 2016, we had about 14 or so states. And by 2019, we had 40, around 39 or 38 states. And now here we are in 2024, fully 10 years after the law was implemented, and there remain these 10 holdout states who refuse to expand. And so the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare often, it doesn't provide subsidies for people with low incomes, incomes below the poverty level. And that's because the law called for them to have Medicaid instead. But uh, instead, there are a number of you know very poor people that aren't uh, able to afford health care coverage. Um, they kind of fall into this, this gap, this Medicaid gap. Correct. And Florida is uh, among the greatest offenders. I would say the only two worse are Alabama and Texas. Excuse me. But uh, we require a parent to have 28 percent of the federal poverty level uh, income, which is extremely low. What is that about? It's about $7,000 a year, a year uh, in order to qualify right now. and if you have no children, it's there is no option. You're you're in the gap. It's called the coverage gap. So no matter what you make, if you're not if you don't have children, you're not ed- eligible for Medicaid. Well, you're technically yes, correct. Okay, in and, Florida, yes. and and you fall into that gap if you make more than seven thousand dollars a year. So essentially, if you make seven thousand dollars a year, you're not eligible for Medicaid, but likely can't afford. Health insurance. Correct. You cannot afford things on the marketplace, even with subsidies. As you know, it's it's that's such a low rate um, to live on. So we're we have huge numbers of people. In fact, one in five ad- adults in our country who do not have health insurance who fall in this gap are f- from the state of Florida. Scott Darius, initially there was resistance to this expansion of Medicaid because states were concerned that it was going to cost them money. Um, and it, it does cost some money. Explain the breakdown there um, in terms of how the state benefits and how the federal government pays. Yeah, you know, I tell people that maybe the only good thing to come from the fact that Florida is among the last 10 states to expand is that we've gotten to see this experiment play out in 40 other places. So whatever conclusions we draw aren't just kind of based on crazy assumptions, but it's based on what we've seen play out. And every state to have expanded a couple of things. One, none of them have gone back on the deal. Every state has the option to pull out if they decide it hasn't worked for them. None of them have. I think we've also seen that every state that's pulled this off has actually managed to save money in the very year that they've expanded. Uh, Florida Policy Institute, one of our great partners, estimates that Florida would save $200 million a year. And that's even after we pay our state share. Uh, 
I had the pleasure of talking to a senator from North Carolina where they recently expanded, and he mentioned, uh, based on their expansion, which started December 1st, that they had added over 600,000 people to their Medicaid rolls, but are paying less for the program this year than they did last year. And that's because, yeah, you cut out the need for emergency room costs, all the other patchwork programs that we have built into the system. Once you eliminate those things, you're actually saving money in the long run. And emergency room care does become a fallback. Is that true? It's one of the biggest problems we have here in the state. When you think about just how much money we spent on preventable dental care uh, in the la- in 2021, most recent numbers I saw, it was half a billion dollars we spent on preventable dental issues in emergency rooms. And that's not counting physical health and all the other things that come up. Uh, and you can see Live Healthy was meant to address that, right? Like that was the big talking point was we have to get, we have to lower emergency room costs because of it being the highest. Yeah. The care you're paying for at that point is the most expensive care. So let's talk about Live Healthy, Dr. Caulfield. Um, this is a set of bills. Uh, the Senate has already signed off on still moving through the house at the state level. Um, and it is ambitious. Um, and it is lawmakers' response essentially to trying to tackle this problem without accepting Medicaid. Tell us a little bit about Live Healthy and what it promises. Well, there's a lot of positives in this bill. And um, one thing is it's really going to be focusing on rural areas in the state of Florida. Um, They are wanting to attract physicians, other healthcare professionals to come into the rural communities, which are basically Um, notably underserved, and uh, they're offering a lot of incentives for physicians and other healthcare professionals to come and practice in rural areas. Uh, I'm very excited about this bill because it really increases the need uh, and the lens on behavioral health care. One of the things that the bill also supports is lowering the threshold or the reciprocity for other professionals, behavioral health professionals, to come into the state of Florida that are licensed in other states. Right now, Florida is very strict um, and not big on having other people come in from the state. They have a lot of barriers. Um, You have to come in and basically re-credential Uh, sit for licensure, and it's a real deterrent for a lot of folks that live in other states. Um, This will open that up. So there's some very good things uh, that are on the horizon if this bill passes. What is the problem of rural health care? Why is that uh, a deficit in the state? I think because a lot of uh, professionals want to live in urban communities um, if they're not used to the rural lifestyle or don't particularly gravitate toward that, it's hard for them to come in and want to stay. Um, And we find that a lot of professionals that are from rural areas uh, that go to school and get licensed want to leave and and move into other communities. So it has been a challenge. Um, Resources are usually tighter in those areas. So again, Um, I'm happy that they're focusing on the rural communities. Scott. Yeah, if I can jump in just to say that, uh, right, just a preface. I don't know if folks know this, but we've had four rural hospitals closed since 2019. Three of them closed in March of 2020, which might, you know, that date might jump out at you for one reason or another. Uh, And so Florida Voices for Health, we had the opportunity to go to a couple of these counties over the last few months. We just held a couple of roundtables just to talk to people about what it's been like to lose a hospital system and kind of what caused it in the first place. And yeah, the things we're seeing don't come as any surprise to anyone who's like living there, right? It's the fact that you have these hospitals that are serving such a high number of uninsured people and folks on Medicaid where there's already such a low reimbursement rate. So basically everyone that they're seeing, they're losing money on for the most part. And it becomes unsustainable eventually and folks are leaving. Now, the reason I cared in the first place was 10 months ago, my wife gave birth to our first kid. Uh, We live in Gainesville, and so we're 15 minutes from Shan's hospital. Uh, But it took two days to be admitted to the hospital for an induction because they had such a long list of people waiting to be induced. And basically what's happening in rural parts of the state is folks are 90 minutes, two hours away from a hospital to deliver a baby. So 
when we got out to these roundtables, the first thing we did was just, you know, one of the first things that stood out to me was that all the worst case scenarios that I had imagined as hypotheticals were actually happening to people. People were losing limbs because they had to go an hour and a half to a hospital. People were having babies on the side of the road because they couldn't get to a hospital in time. So it's just to say that what's happening in our rural communities is a problem and something that we should address. And I'm so happy Live Healthy is working on the provider side of things, but there's I think more a, a holistic view too that needs to be taken. Scott, I want to ask you about that though, because you talk um, about the low reimbursement rate for Medicaid. What is it that is um, that accepting more Medicaid would solve about that um, when it comes to taking those federal dollars? If that is in and of itself a problem. So first, you have such a high number of uninsured, right? So every time those folks get seen, you get nothing back. It's zero and. If they have Medicaid coverage, something is better than nothing. If you're a provider, you're getting reimbursed a little something. Uh, Live Healthy, one of the great things it does is increase provider reimbursement rates on Medicaid. And that's just something that fundamentally needed to happen. So we're excited to like see that be part of the next step. Uh, there's a whole lot more to say there, but yeah. Dr. Stutz. I would just add, you know, it's also the hospitals. It's important that there's Medicaid coverage from a hospital system standpoint because their reimbursement is much more on par with what would be acceptable. Um, the providers do get a, a low rate, but that can be adjusted. But without a hospital system, as a physician, how can you practice in an area? Uh, it, it really is a huge barrier. And unfortunately, Eliminating just one rural hospital impacts, yes, it impacts fewer people, but the people it does impact, it's, it's much greater impact because by definition, these, these places are, are few and far between to begin with. So for, I mean, maybe we don't uh, intuitively understand why losing a hospital would impact the providers there and their ability to provide health care. Why does it? Because if you're a, an OBGYN, where are you having your deliveries. You need a hospital system, right? You need a hospital backup. Where do you do your surgeries? Where do you send your patients who need to be hospitalized overnight? There's almost no physician does not require, you know, a relationship with, with a hospital system. And the expectation is if this Medicaid um, were to be expanded, federal Medicaid, that there would be fewer uninsured so that the reimbursements at a rural hospital might be greater? Exactly. And it's it's much more predictable when you have an insured population because you can predict your utilization. So, for example, in OBGYN, you know, how many deliveries do we have? At least we have the Medicaid reimbursement going on. But right now we have uninsured folks. And in our country, we've always cared for people who need care. So they show up at the emergency room and we take care of them. Thank goodness. But it comes at a great cost because these hospitals now have to close and we're losing providers. And you can imagine why? Well, we're talking about what's changing in Florida's health care coverage and what is not changing, which is including uh, Medicaid expansion. If you've got questions, you can give us a call at 5, uh, 904-549-2937. You can also email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org and you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. Uh, we have a message from Susie on Facebook. She says it's been 10 years we continue to elect people to the legislature who campaign on the government as the problem platform. So why should we expect any action from them? If the government doesn't remain the problem and they fix things, then they will not have a platform for re-election. Um, Dr. Caulfield, there's obviously a lot of politics behind the expansion of Medicaid, um, and it's difficult to kind of find common ground on any issue these days. You know, it's, it is a challenge. Um, I think that with the Live Healthy bill, it's, it's a start. Um, I was pleased to see that, for example, it raises the eligibility rate um, for individuals from 200% to 300% of federal poverty level, making it easier for more families who want to go to free clinics, for example. Um, so I think you see pieces in this bill that are moving in that direction without specifically stating that the state is moving toward Medicaid expansion. And one of the goals of this bill is to increase the number of providers to incentivize people to go to school in these fields um, and to try to boost the ranks um, 
Talk a little bit about that component of this this set of bills. Yes, there's lots of incentives for, uh, particularly in the behavioral health care space, um, for individuals to um, gravitate toward this field and get their education. Uh, for example, there are monies coming in through this bill to hospitals for them to set up internship sites, for example, and training opportunities for individuals to move forward with their education. Uh, This is great news to us because, as we all know, we are in a real workforce shortage, particularly in the healthcare profession. And so anything to incentivize, to bring more providers into Florida, to be able to address this crisis is real positive news. Scott, I know that one thing lawmakers have said in terms of refusing Medicaid and Senate President Kathleen Pasadoma made very clear that that's a non-starter. The Medicaid is not going to be expanded. Um, But they have said, what is the point of expanding, you know, reimbursements if there aren't providers? And that has been a real shortfall. So this this initiative this year does something to help that? Absolutely. Yeah. And right. I think we get as Florida Voices, we talk so much about Medicaid expansion and the need to pursue that as a policy. But everything else that we talk about, because so much of our work is completely driven by the stories we encounter, by people who come to us and tell us what they see and what they've experienced, and we let that lead how we do the work. And I think what jumps out at me from that is that there's so many parts of the system that need fixing, right? We don't talk about Medicaid expansion to the exclusion of everything else. And the same way, we shouldn't talk about workforce to the exclusion of everything else. There's so many pieces of the system that are boxing people in in so many different ways that, yeah, all the things should be discussed. And I think that's where we start to find common ground. That's where we start to like break through a little bit is if we're just willing to have a nuanced conversation about all the approaches that need to be put in place. Dr. Stotz, is there something that you think is changing in the fact that the that the legislature um that has refused these dollars and continues to has taken up this issue so um, dramatically this year. I mean, this really is kind of a big sea change in a lot of ways. Well, at the risk of sounding a little negative, uh, it's great that they finally are acknowledging that we are in a crisis. I mean, Florida is something like 47th out of 50 states in mental health coverage. I think we're dead last in dental coverage. It's, it's, I could go on and on, but Folks don't like to listen to, to facts like that. Um, the, the problem remains to me that there are federal dollars of which all of us pay into every year, year in and year out for decades, that have gone to states who have expanded. And we are getting nothing of those federal dollars that could cover a lot of our citizens tomorrow. All we'd have to do is expand. And Scott's 100% right. We can't think of Medicaid expansion as a panacea. This is a huge problem, but it's a great start is to expand Medicaid. I I think the Live Healthy is is a smaller step forward. It's trying to do many of the same things, but at the cost of our own taxpayers' dollars. We're using Florida dollars to fund this, unless I am misunderstanding something. So if we expand Medicaid, we also eliminate a real problem called medical debt which is what prevents people from seeking medical care after they've had an event, they can't pay off their health care bill, and they're afraid to seek preventative care. And medical debt is a huge problem. The money that is left on the table, um, I've seen various estimates, but the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities says the state left $5 billion on the table in 2023 and estimates that we lose another $14 billion over the next five years. So it is real money that we're talking about that is not being used. Yes. And so the, the $800 million we're spending now, it gives you a little perspective. Yes, it's a baby step in the right direction. I applaud the sentiment, but it's within our power to make a much bigger positive change. The $800 million reference is the Live yes. Healthy budget, right? The I believe it's the about investment. That. Yes. Yeah. Um, Dr. Caulfield, what do you think about the priorities in the Live Healthy initiative. Um, I know that you work in the field of, of mental health care. You right. deal with a lot of uninsured Yes, I people. do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it about this, this set of um, priorities that you are most excited about? I'm most excited about the workforce issue, um, encouraging other 
providers that are licensed in other states to come to Florida. Um, so removing those barriers uh, because we are really struggling with that uh, in our in our system of care. You know, at LSF Health Systems, we have over 80 provider organizations that serve 23 counties or a third of the state, and every single one of them is really challenged with finding credentialed, licensed individuals to work in in their organizations. For example, if you don't have the correct amount of licensed individuals, for example, to serve on a unit um, by license, by the state license, you can't continue operating unless you have the criteria that is necessary to have the complement of professionals. And so you may have uh, beds that are available for people to come in and get their treatment, but if you don't have adequate staff, then you can't staff up those beds. Interesting. Um, we actually have a message related to that from Tom on Facebook. He says, but, uh, but how many medical professionals will want to come to Florida when the Florida legislature has created such a hostile climate for education that has teachers leaving the state in droves? I throw that open to any of you that care to take it. It's a fair question to ask about, right? Like the people will move. They'll, there's an incentive to move, but context matters. So the overall context of the state and how people feel, right, like their relative comfort, I think is <laughs> an important point to make. So just to say, I hear you, Tom. I don't have a great answer other than it's a great point to make. A great point, Tom. Uh, but what I would also say is there are many providers who already have, are already here who might consider staying. It may not attract more people in, but we're also losing providers at a faster rate than, than other places. Why is that? I think it's a combination of what Scott brings up, a, a hostile environment, um, lack of support for, um, you know, following health care. I think COVID was was tough on physicians in Florida. Yeah, tough on providers for yes. sure. A very difficult time. Um, there is a proposal to put the expansion of Medicaid in the hands of voters, um, an initiative that is something that could come to the ballot as soon as 2026. Scott, tell us a little bit about that initiative. Yeah, so being led by Florida Decides Healthcare, uh, the goal is to get on the 2026 ballot and, you know, I guess get a hundred, what is it, a million petition signatures between now and then. They've officially kicked off. Uh, the reason I think we're so excited about the petition itself, the, the drive for it, uh, polling in the state for Medicaid expansion has been high since we've had the opportunity to do it. Uh, and the most recent polling I've seen, support is over 70%. And, you know, the state being what it is, however you feel about who the candidates are on the ballot, I think what we've seen in every election cycle is there's a difference. People are able to make a distinction between the people they want to vote for and the issues they support. And every time we've been given an opportunity to support, you know, something that takes us a step forward, whether it's minimum wage or rights restoration, yeah, the people end up choosing whatever the popular sentiment is. So we feel very confident the same way about Medicaid expansion. And I'd encourage folks if that's, you know, if that's something you're passionate about, right, I encourage you to keep going to the legislature, keep letting them know what it is you desire. But there's also this really great opportunity to take the thing in our own hands and to get it done. So people may poll that they want, you know, health coverage and in the simplest terms probably um, are able to, you know, think about that and process it. But a ballot initiative can be a complicated undertaking and the language has to be very specific. Um, I wonder what you think about how that translates. How is it? How are you able to put something before the voters that is clear enough to them about the implications of Medicaid expansion when it's a very it's a dense topic? Yeah, it's not it's not a sexy subject insurance unless you're, um, you know, a football star. But and want to talk about it. But um, seriously, I think we underestimate how our electorate understands these issues. And I would compare it to the recent ballot initiative to put reproductive rights on the ballot. Uh, the Floridians understand what expanding health care is and what it would do for them and are in, as Scott indicated, in almost two to one agreement, this is good for our state. Uh, you know, it's sad that we have to spend the money. Like you say, it's a very tedious, expensive time-consuming process to do it by ballot initiative. But the fact is seven of the last eight states that
that have expanded Medicaid had to do it via a ballot initiative because they could never get uh, legislator approval. We know, you know, traditionally when somebody makes an investment in healthcare, it's rare that they pull it back. And I think, Scott, you alluded to that. When states expand the Medicaid, you know, provisions, they have not undone that. Um, is there a sense that this Live Healthy initiative, um, Dr. Caulfield, you know, will be in place? Is there any reason that this still couldn't happen, the expansion, and then we kind of have the best of both worlds? You know, that's that's yet to be seen. I think that the Live Healthy bill is a step in the right direction. Uh, it has a lot of the um, initiatives that would help us bring in more funding. Uh, it would help with the workforce shortage situation. Um, one part of the bill talks about an innovative count, innovation council uh, that they want to create to bring in more innovative approaches to health care, for example. And so I think that um, it's going to bode us well to see how this plays out, how it uh, affects individuals that are uninsured or underinsured, and we'll see what happens in the future. We have just a question on Facebook from Thomas. He says, if um, expansion saves Florida money, why would our legislature first not expand it and second, create a program that they will have to fund with state money? Um, Dr. Stotts. Well, that is the question of the hour, isn't it? Uh, I would suggest everyone pose that question to your legislator. Um, there are There is a Republican legislator, by the way, uh, Dr. Rudman, who is in favor of expanding uh, Medicare, Medicaid, but traditionally this has, even though it, there should be nothing political about health care, this has fallen out along party lines. And as you know, where things stand in Florida. It's worth maybe just, we touched briefly on, you know, the threshold for who qualifies and who falls into the, to the gap as, um, if they're not eligible, but for a family, um, the threshold is about $30,000. So if you have a family of three that makes $30,000, you would not be um, eligible for Medicaid. If you're an individual who makes um, $17,000, you would not be eligible, Scott. No, if you're an individual, like Dr. Stott said, if you're an individual with no dependent children, you don't qualify regardless of what you make. Uh, and then, you know, in a family of three, the example we always use, uh, the most you can make is 30% of the poverty level, give or take. And so that number changes a little bit every year as the federal poverty level crimes, uh, climbs up. And right now, the most you can make if you're in a family of three is about $7,000 to $8,000 for the year. And so if you're a family, you know, and you think about the industries that really are the backbone of Florida's economy, right? So retail workers, food service, construction, it's all those folks who make $25,000, $30,000 a year, and they fall firmly in the gap because they don't quite make 100% of the poverty level where tax credits would start and are over that 30% threshold where Yeah, I, I want to correct off. what I was saying. I, I think, yeah. I, I apologize, Medicaid expansion would allow for an individual who makes $17,000 a year would be able to, to qualify Absolutely. for Medicaid. And a family of three that made $30,000, if Medicaid was, expand, was expanded, they would qualify. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the to the question of why haven't we done it, right? There's this whole idea of who's deserving. Uh, and it's, we don't want to give lazy, able-bodied pe people who aren't doing anything, we don't want to give them access to healthcare. Let's say that's your position, that's fine. That's not fundamentally who we're talking about. The people in the coverage gap are those folks who are working but find themselves earning too much to qualify for Medicaid in the state. In fact, there's a disincentive to work. The more I work, Right. Like how likely is it that the raise I get at work puts me not just like from Medicaid eligibility, jumps me over that entire gap to a place where I now get where I'm eligible for tax credits. It's just unlikely. Right. The most raise, you know, the highest raise any one of us has ever gotten, it feels like is a dollar or two at a time. And it just moves you closer to the gap. So there's a, really a disincentive to work sometimes that I think works against the whole idea of it's just lazy, able bodied people who. Yeah, want Medicaid coverage. 
Well, it's a very important issue. We're going to stay abreast of it as it continues to evolve. Thank you so much for sharing all of the information and, and feedback, Dr. Nancy Stotts, Dr. Caulfield. Scott Darius, thank you. Not a doctor. Appreciate for being here. Thank you this morning. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we'll be right back with the CFO, Chief Fish Officer of UNF's first zebrafish colony to talk about the importance of hands-on learning. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Dr. Judy Ockreiter, Director of the Office of Undergraduate Research at the University of North Florida. Hi, Dr. Judy. Good morning. And Alex Bartkoviak, a UNF biology major and student researcher who's currently doing an internship at Mayo Clinic. Hey, how are you doing, Alex? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, Alex, we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of research and hands-on learning um, for the next little bit. And I want to start with your background because you sort of had a non-traditional path to college. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So basically I grew up in Jacksonville. Um, I've lived here for like my entire life. Uh, so I went to Stanton college prep for uh, high school. And so essentially after two years, I actually ended up dropping out, um, and kind of pursued a non-traditional path. Uh, so I went to FSCJ for my associate's degree, actually after working in a lab for about a year in between, uh, and then used that to transfer into UNF and then started doing research there. And then as of now, I've done like a bunch of research experiences through both UNF and then at the University of Florida and then also now with Mayo Clinic. So, And what was it that um, kind of got you out of school in the first place? What was it that um, was either difficult or not appealing to you about the high school experience? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure as a lot of people in Jacksonville know, Stanton is like very academically challenging. So uh, I did really well my freshman year. And then in my sophomore year, I was actually kind of getting frustrated by the fact that I wasn't really able to do as much science as I wanted to, because you only get to take one science class per year. Uh, and so at that point, I actually, funnily enough, while I was also uh, leaving Stanton, I ended up winning, I think, third place in the state science fair with my friend. So I, I knew that that was like what I wanted to pursue. Um, and uh, through that science fair connection, I actually ended up meeting somebody locally in Jacksonville who was running kind of like a makerspace slash community biology space. Uh, and then I interned there for the next year uh, instead of going to school. So I basically got my parents to sign a sheet that said that I was a homeschooler for a year. And then that's just uh, what I did instead of going to high school. So you did research. Yep. And any particular kind? Yeah. So that was actually a very strange project where we were working on uh, HSV2 gene therapy. Uh, so I got to do a bunch of cell culturing. So basically you take like mammalian cells and you can grow them in a dish and do a bunch of different treatments on them. So uh, it was interesting because it was a very strange environment. It was essentially like in a warehouse, uh, you know, but we were doing like real biology. And so that was my first hands-on experience with molecular biology. And then from there, um, I kind of realized like, oh, uh, you know, I want to be a scientist when I when I grow up. Like I need to get a PhD. I need to like follow the traditional path to, you know, get where I want to be. So that's when I ended up going back to school and, you know, pursuing the path I'm on now. Uh, Dr. Ockreiter, you run, you're, you're a biologist yeah. as well, and you teach biology, but you are also in charge of the University of North Florida's Office of Undergraduate Research. So what, what do you oversee when it comes to student research? Certainly. Uh, our job is to help students find research experiences on our campus. So uh, there are lots of students like Alex who come in knowing that they want that, but there are many more students who don't realize what's available to them. And so we're showing them what opportunities are available. Once we get them into those research experiences, we can also help to uh, support them through funding, uh, either to support their work that they're doing, or then to go on to conferences and present the work that they've done. 
And for somebody like Alex, it, it sounds like research very much, you know, drove his passion for education and continued learning. Um, but how does it connect with students maybe that don't have his level of drive and, and fascination with a particular subject? Certainly. Uh, I think there are a lot of students who come into school thinking that they want to do something particular because they don't know all of the great different opportunities that are available. And so usually there's a, an early class that they'll take where a professor will indicate that there are these opportunities and there are these ways to work outside of the classroom and, and use your brain in a different way um, and, and apply what you've learned in, your, in the classroom. And so we try to help those students, again, find those opportunities. And I, I think they just don't realize all that's available to them in, until they come and talk with us. Are there certain fields that lend themselves more? I mean, obviously, when you're talking about, you know, molecular biology, that seems like that would be a pretty easy transition to research. But what if you're a history major or literature? We have research experiences all across our campus. Uh, there are an amazing number of students in those degrees that you just said, in, in those majors, um, literature, languages, and, and cultures, uh, history, uh, that are, are doing research projects. Usually they're working with um, community uh, members and, and working on things that in, impact our uh, community. Uh, sometimes they're, they're doing things that, you know, are, are impacting the world, uh, depending on what kind of history or, or literature or language they're, they're working with. Um, but it, although we have a very strong STEM uh, group at, at UNF uh, and, and also social sciences, really uh, the humanities and, and arts are doing quite a bit of research as well. What does Alex's experience tell you about, you know, the importance of research? I think that he's a great example of exactly what UNF can do for students. Uh, you can come in, work with faculty outside of the classroom, get that one-on-one -on -one experience, and go on and then move on to research experiences outside our campus, which is exactly what, what Alex is doing. Um, getting those different kinds of, of experiences, really building your skills and making you that much more marketable for when you go to graduate school or even if you're looking to go right into the workforce. Alex, I want to talk to you a little bit about the research that you have been doing at UNF with zebrafish. Tell us a little bit about where the inspiration for this project came from. Yeah, so uh, I work with Dr. Marie Mooney, um, and she's in the biology department. Uh, and so essentially, uh, kind of the inspiration for the project uh, was that I was an undergrad looking for research opportunities. Uh, and then Dr. Mooney essentially gave a talk at one of the lecture series that we have at UNF. Um, and so she kind of talked about all this data that she had from zebrafish uh, that she actually collected while she was a postdoc. And so she had this huge data set and really nobody to analyze it. And I was like, all right, you know, I'll take a shot at this. I'll try analyzing this. And, and so essentially I would just kind of go back to her office over and over again and, you know, try to get through this project kind of a little bit independently at first. Um, and so that was kind of how I got started working with the zebrafish. Um, so more on like the informatics side doing coding. And then uh, actually we didn't have a zebrafish vivarium at that point. So we started building an entire system to house zebrafish at UNF. Um, so I got to basically be there from the ground up, you know, building this whole aquarium. Uh, Dr. Mooney actually went for the summer, and so I took care of the fish for that, for that summer. She sent the fish down to Jacksonville, and I got to breed them and get our system up and running. And so, yeah, it's been a really unique experience uh, in the fact that, like, I essentially have a part in, you know, everything that goes on with the fish at UNF. I, I think it's a, a lot of responsibility for undergrads, but I think it's great to, you know, get us that experience early on. So. And the um, direction of your research is somewhat rooted in your own experience with friends and, and uh, that were going through struggles when, when they were in high school. Yeah. So that's like uh, the overarching theme of my own personal interest and some of the work that I've done outside of UNF. Uh, more inside of UNF, the work is mainly focused on like rare genetic disorders. That's what Dr. Mooney studies. Um, but I got to tie in like my own interest in neuropharmacology because she was working with a data set of uh, fish that have been treated with different drugs. And so uh, they're all like neuroactive compounds for treating this rare disorder. And so I got to connect like my own passion for it with uh, like Dr. Mooney's passions for genetic disorders. And it kind of came together really well. And talk a little bit about what your own passion is. Like, what is that area that you're interested in researching? Yeah, so my primary interest uh, right now is actually working on next-generation antidepressants um, that are, like, mostly inspired on psychedelic compounds, so serotonergic psychedelics, uh, essentially. And so I actually got to do some work at the University of Florida over the summer um, where I was essentially trying to see 
whether or not a certain region of the brain um, was responsible for hallucinations in mice. So that was that was really cool as well. Um, and so essentially, uh, my goal in the future is to work on projects where people are trying to develop these psychedelics that don't actually induce the hallucinations so that you can give the psychedelic to somebody. Um, they can essentially not have to go through the psychedelic experience, but get the positive antidepressant effect. Because they have found a good connection now between the impacts of psychedelics and people who've been suffering, especially with like chronic long-term depression. Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, so like specifically psilocybin, some of the clinical trials are, are going through right now and they're seeming pretty promising. So, And long term, what is your goal? What, what is it that you want to do with the skills that you've built? Yeah. So actually, um, in the summer or fall, I'll be starting my PhD at University of Florida in pharmacology. So, you know, uh, I'd just like to, again, like emphasize, like thanking UNF for all the opportunities they provide me because I wouldn't have been able, you know, to do this had I not worked in Dr. Mooney's laboratory and then got, you know, help from Dr. O and been able to go to UF and have that experience um, that connected me with the department. Um, and so hopefully I hope to get my PhD in pharmacology and then from there work in uh, drug development for psychedelic inspired antidepressant compounds. And not everybody is as perhaps focused or, you know, uh, self-aware in terms of like what they want to do as mm -hmm. you are. But what would you say to, to students that maybe don't have that same um, sense of, you know, purpose in how research and hands-on learning can help them? Yeah, I would say something that people uh, like don't consider a lot of times as undergrads is that research can prepare you for like all aspects of life. Uh, really, you learn like a, a ridiculous amount of life skills that are not even related to, you know, um, analyzing data or designing experiences. Uh, you know, it's um, uh, kind of just like having the responsibility of being in charge of something and like taking ownership over something uh, like ownership over your learning experience as well, I think is really important. So I would say if somebody has any interest in undergraduate uh, research that they should just start no matter what it is, just like get in there. Um, and then a lot of professors as well will say, you kind of learn what you like to do um, by learning what you don't like. And so, you know, you might try something, you might not like it, um, but you know, you've learned that you don't like that now and you can move on to the next thing and just keep on growing. Dr. Ockreiter, I would guess that there's some barriers to this kinds of uh, this kind of learning. I mean, it maybe is expensive, maybe time consuming, it is. Uh, depending on the field, there might be particular instrumentation that's needed or reagents to complete the projects. Um, so there are, again, ways that, that we try to help um, provide some funding for students. Of course, it's limited, so it's competitive um, applications that, that we take and, and give out that money. Um, really having donors that would provide assistance uh, and supporting our students would be fantastic to have, again, support time, uh, support their their uh, reagents and, and things that they might need. Um, really working with the community is the way that we're going to be able to expand that as, as best we can. Well, Judy Ockreiter, Dr. Ockreiter, thank you for being here. Alex Bartkoviak, thank you for sharing your story and good luck with all of your future research. We look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you very much. Take care of those zebrafish. I will. Thank you. Stick with us. In just a minute, we talk about the latest automotive and transportation headlines with WJCT's resident gearhead, Dan Scanlon. Wayne Hogan of the Terrell Hogan Personal Injury and Wrongful Death Law Firm. When people are hurt through no fault of their own, answering who, what, when, where, why, and how is critical to proving the truth. More at TerrellHogan.com. Mosh's 2024 Gala takes you from galaxy to garden, a celebration of fantastical elements found in our backyard. This event supports the Mosh Genesis Initiative to create a new state-of-the-art museum. More info at mosh.org. 
I'm Scott Tong. China's economy, once a world beater, is slumping, notably in real estate, an essential economic engine for the country. For the past 20 years, the government has over-invested in cities, in infrastructure, and they have under-invested in people. Next time on Here and Now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, the behind-the-scenes battles that have shaped the Academy Awards. A talk with New Yorker staff writer Michael Schulman, author of the book Oscar Wars. It's about the ongoing tensions over race, gender, and representation, and earlier conflicts dating back to the founding of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which administers the Oscars. Join us. Today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. With less than 10 months until the election, political maneuvering is in high gear. And again, the GOP is making immigration a key issue. But the party in Congress is facing criticism for not being seen to do much about it. Also, the courthouse and the campaign. We break down the latest and consider how the former president's mounting legal woes will impact his re-election bid. That's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. And we're back. I'm joined now by WJCT reporter Dan Scanlon, who, among many talents, has reported on traffic, road issues, and automotive news on the First Coast for three decades. Yes. Hey, Dan. Good morning, man. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us for our monthly segment on all things cars and uh, transportation. Let's get started with some car safety measures. Um, so we're all getting accustomed to, and some might say, a little over-reliant on yes. some car safety uh, features things like emergency braking or object detection systems. Um, but there's some research to suggest that maybe we should not be quite so confident in these systems. AAA just did some testing on the reverse camera technology and the accident avoidance systems that are there. Uh, they're supposed to actually, when you're in reverse, if they detect an object coming from left to right, like you're in a public parking lot or a child or person is there, they're supposed to auto brake. And in most cases they did, but over-reliance on the camera and the system is the problem. I have a 35-year-old car. I have to use my mirrors. There are no cameras. And I have to reacquaint myself because I do car reviews. And I have all these safety systems. You need to use the mirrors. You need to look at the review camera. You need to look at both left and right. Use your neck. Crane around. Look. And hopefully you don't run over. Because children being run over in driveways has become a major issue of late by family members. We've covered it here because they're not looking visually looking. They're using the system and hoping it works. Now, it does work. I mean, I park in this parking lot and some of the systems in the cars that I test, and it will stop me cold mm. because it senses the curb. And I mean, it's a hard stop. I've also been on an interstate and had the front braking system stop me, start plowing on those brakes and flashing red lights at me because the guy in front of me slows down just as I'm about to hit the brake. So They tested three different vehicles here, uh, a Hyundai Tucson Hybrid. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, a Lexus RX 350 and a Mazda CX 30. Um, and what did they what did they find in terms of which systems were better than the others in terms of the, the the rear view and the stationary object? I don't know about which system was best. They just used those as rep representative of both an, an expensive and a reasonably priced system. But what they found is the reverse system automatically applied brakes in 65 percent of test runs and preventing collisions in 2.5%. That's when you're in the parking lot backing up. And again, some cars have front systems as well now that detect cars, especially if you're at a T intersection and can't see left or right. Mm -hmm. There's now cameras that augment with sensors. Then with the child target, the dummy standing behind the car, the automatic reverse brakes work 75% of test runs and prevented collisions half the time. So those systems work better, but again, eyeballs, on half, the mirror, half, our best. Half the time doesn't seem like a great uh, record, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And and uh, I can remember years ago testing a Volvo with this system and using a cardboard cutout life-size of Captain Kirk. And amazingly, the Volvo never hit Captain Kirk. That was just because it was handy where I was. Uh, and, and But you don't rely on that. Yeah. Don't look at your phone. Look around you. Don't Don't go looking for the bag of popcorn that you just bought when you went to the supermarket. Use your eyes. Let's move on to another automotive headline. Um, fallout from last year's contentious strike by the United Auto Workers. Now the CEO of Ford is saying 
that is causing him to, quote, rethink where the uh, company will be building vehicles in the future. What what is that portent? Well, the good news is that these union workers who work long shifts and hard shifts who have not been getting a lot of money are getting more money. The bad news is that exponentially takes up the cost of especially the electric vehicles, which are costing a lot in technology and development. And the hint might be we might start building them in Mexico where you still get your $7,500 tax credit on an EV. And in fact, I just found out if you have a used EV, you get 4500 bucks. But that's the hint right now is that we go to a cheaper place that still lets the buyer get the federal EV discount and we make the cars cheaper. And of course, the biggest concern is the Chinese EVs are starting to show up. They're okay, but they will get better. And now there's more competition for the American car maker. But this is seeming almost like a little bit of a backlash from the uh, from the auto industry. Yeah, Ford course- was not happy. The first the first plant to strike was their truck plant, and that's their that's their money in the pocket. Uh, that's where they get all their money from. And they have you know significantly more exposure than a lot of other automotive companies. They have more union members, fifty seven thousand union members of any Detroit automaker. Yes, which is a traditional home home base for unions. Uh, that's everybody. You, your grandpa was a union member at Ford. Your, your father was, and you're working now, um, but you're not making the money. And so I understand that logic. That's logic. And we saw a massive impact. I'm still not getting some press cars right now because they're still ramping up production uh, from that hit uh, of the strikes. So no firm plans yet. And whether that means moving to Mexico for manufacturing or somewhere else, not clear, but just sort of early hints that that might that might happen. It just sounds like they'll be talking to Sean Fain, the uh, the UAW president, and trying to work on some uh, uh, leniency here to try to find a way to uh, to build and stay in America, which the president, Biden and his gang really want. Biden's very pro-union when it comes to car makers. Let's talk about guardrails. So there has been some some research into how effective they are against EVs. Explain why they're um, finding problems with that. Well, the average electric vehicle can be 4,000 pounds, which is about the same uh, weight as an SUV, up to 9,000 pounds for the Hummer EV. And they have low-mounted batteries. Guardrails are designed to handle about 5,000 pounds and stop you from going over a cliff. The video that was shown on NBC yesterday shows a Rivian going through the guardrail and flying. Dramatic uh, video. And I know that next weekend is the uh, Amelia Concours. You'll be there and we'll look forward to an update from you at that time, yeah, Dan Scanlon. 29 years that has been up there. I can't wait. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our program. Join us again Tuesday when we revisit the history of a little-known Klan bombing in Jacksonville that nearly claimed the life of a six-year-old child. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome to my spaceship. It's beautiful forever. Well, she's riding away you left her. And the heart's alone. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.